Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The secret to catching prize-worthy fish? Fishing like a local. Jonas Knox here with Fishing Booker. The valuable knowledge of a local guide can turn a fishing trip of no bites into the best catch of the day. Go to fishingbooker.com to discover thousands of local fishing charters from all around the world and create your perfect angling adventure with their easy-to-use online booking system. Visit fishingbooker.com and book your trip today. Fishing Booker. Fishing trips made easy. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. Winter is coming. Heavy rain, sleet, snow, and ice. Are your tires up for the challenge? Tread confidently in winter's worst with a set of new tires from Tire Rack. They sell only the best, like the full line of Yokohama tires. Go to TireRack.com sports. Tell them what you drive. Your tires will ship fast and free to you or one of over 10,000 recommended installers. TireRack.com, the way tire buying should be. Thanks for listening to the best of Outkick the Coverage podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning from 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern, 3 to 6 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for Outkick the Coverage at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every morning on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR. This is the best of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis on Fox Sports Radio. Shannon Spakes with us now, Fox Sports, uh, FS1, Race Hub. She does a little bit of everything. Uh, Shannon, how excited are you for the NFL preseason? You're in Charlotte. Will you pay attention to the Panthers? Will you pay attention to the overall first weekend? or uh, First, let's start Thursday. It's the weekend. Uh, will you pay attention to these games tonight? Yeah, I'm about as excited as uh, coming into BC Boys this morning. Uh, <laughs> yes, waking everybody up. to me is one of, if not like one of the top five, definitely one of the top ten best albums of all time. Could listen to that entire album and probably still know every single word to every single song. So thank you for that. Um, yes, I'm excited about football to start, of course. I, I work on the sidelines, but I'm a huge football fan. And I feel like, as you said, it's been such a long off season of um, – <laughs> of rules and, um, you know, people being in the news for the wrong reason and multi-gazillion dollar, you know, contracts that nobody seems to really understand. So I'm excited just to see these guys get back on the field and play, which is, you know, this is the reason that little kids hang up their the posters in their rooms. You know, this is the reason I had number 34 on my wall when I was growing up is because what goes on on the field, not because of what goes on off the field. So I'm excited for these guys to get back to action. I mean, I don't know how much we really learn in, you know, preseason games because you're not obviously playing your best guys and you're not playing against the best guys. But I think to see some of the young guys who, you know, just coming out of college, to see them with, with the lights a, a little bit brighter, obviously not as bright as they will be week one, but a little bit brighter. And, and then just to kind of get around your buddies and enjoy the fact that football's back. It's awesome. You uh, are on the sidelines for Fox Sports. Uh, have you guys had conversations about what to do about the anthem this year? Because my hope is... This is our first real kind of test. The NFL said, hey, we're talking with the Players Association, 
and then nothing has come out so far. We didn't have any kind of uh, controversy surrounding the Hall of Fame game. There are 12 games going on uh, in the preseason today across the entire nation. When you're on the sideline covering these games, I, I'm sure you wish the whole controversy would just go away. But what's your role now that they might be in the locker room? They might be like, do you have an obligation to cover that? Have you discussed it at all? No, I think we cover we cover something if if the situation warrants it, and we don't we don't cover the anthem anyways, right? So yeah, we don't we don't do it. So it's not something we're going to do just because this is going on. I think if there was something like a major protest, not something where you know a player still in the locker room because Clay, we don't know why a player is in the locker room, right? A player That's a good could point. be in the locker room because he still has his cleats. You know, he's still getting taped up, or he's still doing this, or he has to use the bathroom, or whatever. Uh, so you don't want to speculate as to why he's not out there during the anthem. But I think we're going we're gonna to continue to do it exactly the way we've done it, which I appreciate, uh, not to sensationalize it. And, and if there is a specific, if somebody comes out and protests, someone runs across the field, or something happens specific that I think warrants some coverage, then we will absolutely cover it. But I do, I look around, when I'm down on that sideline, so you know, for me, the national anthem, even a NASCAR, it, it's my time to reflect. It's you know, pre-race, pre-game is it, super crazy. You're running around, you're trying to talk to players, you're trying to watch things that are going on, whether there's injuries or specific things that might play out in, in a race or, or in a game. When the national anthem comes on, it's kind of my time to reflect. It's my time personally to realize where I am and what I'm doing for a living. It's my appreciation time, and so it's also time that I kind of look around. And I see, you know, what's going on. And, and I certainly take it in. But from a, from a TV standpoint, uh, we're going to continue to do exactly what we've done. You just uh, you do a ton of cool things. But I saw something. I was like, this looks like it would have been awesome to do. First of all, you got to voice uh, a uh, reporter in Cars 3, I believe, right? Which is just yeah, an unbelievable. Yeah, your kids like that movie, huh? Oh, my <laughs> kids. I have watched Cars, the Cars movies. <laughs> thousands of i'm not even kidding about that like my kids now have my three my three-year-old now has moved on to spider-man so we i've watched spider-man okay. now thousands of times <laughs> but before that all three of my boys were obsessed with the cars movie so i have watched them just on repeat over and over and over again so you got to tour pixar what was that yeah. like so cool and it was so cool to do it with my kids and, and my parents actually my dad and my stepmom who are huge disney fans they are the people who go to disney world they're the adults that go to disney world by themselves and that's like, my parents too yes <laughs> you're like what are they doing here because to me waiting in line for four hours for a ride is not how i want to spend my 40th birthday <laughs> yes but that's what they do and um so it was super cool for them and the pixar people have been so incredible i mean i i had like three lines in that movie and throughout the entire thing, they, they've sent me stuff. They send me stuff for the kids. They opened up their doors. They, they got to take that. We went in back into some areas where the normal folks who kind of tour the Pixar uh, production uh, studios don't normally get to go. And it, it's all the drawings. Uh, of some of the movies that, that they've had. Coco most recently. Coco, Coco the- by the way, is such an incredibly good movie. I mean, I as an as an adult, like these movies are good. But when you're watching kids' movies, uh, you know what Pixar I think has done better than anybody ever before is they can make you as an adult excited to go see a kids' movie because they're so well put together and appearing on so many different levels simultaneously. Sure. Coco is a work of art. I mean, it's incredible sure. how good that movie is, and so many of those Pixar Incredibles too. I took my kids to see. I mean, I'm in love with the talent behind these Pixar movies. So when I saw you got to tour, I was like, yeah. this is incredible. 
Yeah, and in one area, all of the graphic designers or, or all of the artists, they get to decorate their offices, like the outside of their offices, any way that they want. And I'm telling you, you walk in and it's like a cabana. I mean, it is the coolest area. It was really, really cool. And by the way, like, have you seen Up? Oh, yeah, of course. It's like, and, and I cry every time, like, every time the opening and really? up where they do like that old man and the, and the wife yes. uh, scene, like, and they just, you know, like she's died. I'm like, I tear up every single time, even though I know what's going to happen there. Yeah. I look at my husband. I'm like, what are we watching? I mean, I actually fast forward that part for my kids because oh. I feel like it's a little too sad for them to watch. Like the, the yes. reality of life, you know, they're, they're eight. <laughs> like yeah. They'll kind of live in their bubble a little bit. But, yeah, the messages are really cool. It was very, very cool to go and do that. And we were out there in um, the San Francisco area. I had an Ironman. I started doing Ironman events, um, I would say, about three years ago. And we actually have one coming up in Panama City. I'm doing a full, my very first full Ironman in Panama City on November 3rd. And I know that you go down there. Yes. So if you happen to be around, come join us. So <laughs> the Ironman, what, I, know, I know people who train for this. So what is, what is the, what does the Ironman entail? Like what are the, I, I know it's like the running, the swimming, and the biking, but mm-hmm. how far is each of those? So I've never done a full Ironman. So this will be my first full. I've done three half Ironmans. That's what I actually competed in last weekend out in uh, Santa Rosa, which is in the Sonoma County uh, area of California. And that distance is a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile bike ride, and then a 13.1-mile run. So I've done that three times. I've done two out here in North Carolina and then now one in California. All right, so break and, that um, break yeah. that down for me. Like as yeah. you're going through it, okay, so you start yeah. with the swim? Yes. And yeah. like, so when I hear about these swimming events, I always think, so where did you swim in the ocean and a lake? Like, where do you swim? Right. So this, uh, unfortunately, our swim this past weekend was canceled because of fog. I mean, you literally couldn't see 10 feet in front of you and to put 3000 athletes in a open water situation where you cannot see them. It's, it's extremely dangerous. So we, unfortunately, this past weekend, it was canceled. But in past years, we actually swam in uh, Wilmington. I did one, where, which is kind of in the bay, and then in a lake in Raleigh. And it is a free-for-all. When, I, when I'm telling you there are 3,000, 4,000 people in the water at the same time with no lane lines, with no points of reference, with people literally swimming over you. Uh, my last race, I, I saw this girl. She kind of popped her head out of the water. And I'm, I'm one of those people, like, if I see someone struggling, I'm not just going to kind of blow past them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check on them. And, and, I, and I said to her, are you okay? And she's like, am I, am I bleeding? I just got kicked in the face. I mean, literally, this is what happens. I've been kicked in the stomach. It, it's awful. <laughs> it, it is awful. But when you get out of the water and it's over, there is this sense of accomplishment and relief and that, that, that it, it's second to none. And, and then you make the transition. So you, you run in your wetsuit if the water was cold enough or, or in what you're going to race in for the rest of the, for the, rest of the race. And, and you go through the transition. You throw on all your bike stuff um, and you jump on your bike and, and then you go 56 miles on the bike. And then you um, finish then, with 13 miles running, like correct. a half marathon. So to you, which one is the most difficult? Well, running is my favorite thing to do. Like, I listen to your show all the time. I have 10 miles that I have to do tomorrow. So with the heat right now, I'll be on the road by 4.30. So I'll listen to your show. I'll listen to Stern. I I don't really listen to music. I have really bad ADD when it comes to that. I can never find something that I like. So to listen to you and to Stern, it it just kind of gets me through my run. So running to me is the most kind of I have I can find a focus and I really enjoy doing it. But it is the hardest because it's because it's the last thing. And mentally, Clay, you're you're like I'm almost done, right? Because you're like, all right, the swim's over, the bike's over, I'm almost done. But but you're not. 
So you have to completely check yourself and you have to race your own race. And that's hard when there's other people running around you, passing you, because you always want to kind of catch them. But you have to remember that that you've got a really long distance to go. And so it is it's a real test of, of mental strength, I think, way more than physical, because I think physically people can do this, particularly if you're trained. But the mental aspect of it is so much more challenging. So how long does this entire process take roughly? I know you haven't done a full yeah. one yet, but when you do yeah. a full one, are you trying to finish in like four? I have honestly no idea. I, I, I'm too much yeah. of, a, uh, of, of a wimp to try this thing, honestly. No, come on. Seriously, if you're in Panama City when we're out there, just November 3rd, it would be such an experience for you to, I don't know, just kind of see the way that it all, that it, that it all goes, you know, the, the transition areas and when those athletes come through the shoot and, and Mike Riley, who's the voice of Iron Man, calls these people and says that they're an Iron Man, the emotions that they feel because of all the training, their families around them, it's, it's pretty incredible. Uh, but to answer your question, my hats take about six hours. So I, I'm thinking the full will probably be, I, I want to say like 14, because I'm going to give myself, I, I'm doing a full marathon rather than a half marathon. So I know my time is going to be so much slower. Um, we're swimming 2.6 miles in oh the ocean. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. This is just unbelievable. Like I, I did a half <laughs> marathon. My wife, when she was like, after we had our first kid, my wife was like, we need to do something uh, athletic together. And I was like, okay, like I hate running. I mean, I'm fine with like running for sports or sprinting or whatever, but I hate distance running. So she was like, well, we're going to do the half marathon. Nashville has a really cool half marathon where you run through the city and they play music. It's become very music, popular. Yeah, the rock and roll. Yeah, the rock and roll. I mean, it's really, it, it is pretty cool the way the city puts it on. And so I was like, all right, I'll do this. And so I start training and, um, and about, I don't know, two months into the training, my wife realizes she's pregnant with our second son. And so she drops out. Oh, yeah. So she drops out. She's like, I'm going to be like seven months pregnant by the time. I'm not going to run, you know, the half marathon. Uh And so I was like, well, I'll go ahead and finish. And everybody was like, by the time you finish this half marathon, you will like feel, you know, totally different about yourself. Everything. The truth of the matter was, as I was doing the half marathon, I was thinking to myself, this is the worst decision I've ever made. Now I finished, (laughs) but there's a picture of me crossing the finish line and they snapped mm-hmm. a photo right as I finished, and it's just I'm thoroughly disgusted on my face. Like everybody else has got like this epiphany or this euphoria that they felt when they finished it. I never got a second wind on the whole race. I never was ecstatic, excited. I felt no epiphanies. So I, I at that point, I hung up my race uh, race shoes. But I would be interested to watch other people. That's crazy. Yeah. So congratulations yeah. to you for knocking that mm. out. All right. So so mm. you listen to the show. So we got a couple of questions for you since you're uh, sure. you're aware of some of the controversies and debates we've had here lately one you got a couple of kids if you found out that they were dating a porn star all right let's say that one of them grows up to be an nfl quarterback you are mom you are not like yourself right your mom you're reacting to this i had this conversation with my wife too and your 26 year old son is famous and he goes out with a porn star to a beverly hills restaurant mom says the next time she talks to him what well, see, listen, so I, I actually have a tattoo on my foot of a scripture. It's the one I live by, which is, he who judges shall be judged. And yes. I strongly live my life by that. So I'm not going to judge what she does for a living, um, but I am going to tell my son to maybe have a little more discretion about situations like that. I mean, she may be an awesome girl, right? Um, but I'm going to tell him just based on the situation that he's in right now and, and the spotlight that's on him, 
is that discretion might be something um, that, that he might need to do. That's my right. advice to my children. Again, I do not, I, I try very hard to live my life by that scripture, which is not to judge people, uh, because I think you, you don't know them until you know them. But that, that's my advice to my son. All right, so uh, you heard Petros Papadegas and I talking uh, a couple days ago. I guess it was he's on with us Tuesday, so it was literally a couple days ago. He and I, I have been dis- the NFL seminar, by the way. Oh, you did. He's an awesome dude. Yeah. Had you met him before? Yeah, he's awesome. I have. Yeah, he and I sat behind Brady Quinn. So he wrote. He. I don't know if you saw that drawing that he oh. did of Brady Quinn. By back. the way, by yeah. the way, how good looking is Brady Quinn? Um, yeah, he's. Yeah, by the he way, he looks like wife? he looks uh, like if you were designing like Superman. a. He's a Superman, right? He looks just like Superman. Like <laughs> I, I, my favorite Brady Quinn story is he and Matt Leiner, you know, obviously played against each other at USC and and Notre Dame, and so there was a, a good rivalry there, and uh, and so one day they and I think I talked with the, uh, with Petros about this. They put Brady Quinn. They put Matt Leiner and they put Joel Klatt all on a panel with me and Petros. And they spaced us so that it was like two gorgeous guy, me, gorgeous guy, Petros, gorgeous guy. And so they just threw the two ugly guys like right in the middle of all these hunky former quarterbacks who were just like making love to the camera. And one of our commercial breaks, Petros just turns to me and he's like, why have they done this to us? What have we done to uh, what have we done to the people at Fox for this to happen? So, yes, I saw his drawing, Brady Quinn. So Petros and I have been going on for a while. Petros has been ridiculing me. We used to get dressed beside each other. uh, uh, Hence the nipple conversation. Yes. Uh, yeah. So Petros's nipples are interesting because half of one of his nipples got ripped off one day in a, wow. in a USC game. Like he just lost half of his nipples. So he has, first of all, tiny nipples to begin with. And then uh, half of one of his is gone. I have these like big kind of like uh, pepperoni sausage or whatever yeah. they are, pepperoni nipples. And so I got, you'll love this, out of nowhere, all right, I get emailed by a plastic surgeon. I think this was last, this. last year. And the headline of the of the uh, of the email is man boobs, and it's like this plastic surgeon has reached out to me out of nowhere, gotten my email address, and said, "Hey, I saw a picture of you shirtless online, and I saw that this is a hundred percent a true story. I saw that you have man boobs and bad nipples." He's like, "I can fix that for you. I'll do it for free." All you have to do is come on and talk about the fact that you got a nipple job and a boob job from me, and. Uh, and I'm kind of tempted to do it. What would your yeah. advice be to me? If you want to do it, do it. And listen, you, it, it, all the haters out there who, who are against plastic surgery and all that stuff, I mean, it's for, for the work. It's for the job, right? So you yeah. at least have an There's no telling when I might have, have to go topless. To you have got to bring a camera in there when they start to give you some of these drugs. You know how, like, all those videos yes. of kids, when they get their, their wisdom teeth taken out? Like, that's the, the key to the whole thing is, is you, have to, you have to bring a camera in there. And people will say like it's a ridiculous thing. I guarantee you, if I did a show about getting my boobs done, getting my uh, my <laughs> man boobs high. done, it would be like the most downloaded podcast of the month. No I get especially in June and July when nothing else is going on. Shannon, we got to get you on regularly. Uh, I appreciate you. Thanks for listening and texting during the show and hanging out with us. Uh, go follow Shannon at Shannon Spake on Twitter. Uh, NASCAR. She's got uh, NFL. She's got everything covered for you and. Awesome luck on training. I hope we can keep you entertained on those long runs. Thank you, Clay. Talk, that, talk to you soon. I'll listen to you tomorrow.
Yes, perfect. Good deal. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. We're going to be joined by John Morosi. He is a Major League Baseball expert. And I want to hit John right out of the jump here. He's with us. This was, I thought, a really interesting uh, story. I don't know. We talk sometimes about larger issues in baseball and why maybe the sport doesn't have that national fan base. And my guy, Mike Mulvihill, who I think is like the smartest Fox Sports uh, executive when it comes to actually breaking down data, had something really interesting that he tweeted out. Everybody wants to talk about how the uh, NBA is so on fire, right? You can talk about NBA players, LeBron James to the Lakers, uh, Kevin Durant, the Warriors, Steph Curry, everything about the NBA other than actually the product itself, since there's only like two people who can win, uh, two teams who can win, it feels like, every year. Um, but it, it's interesting, like, why is it that um, that Major League Baseball doesn't get that much positive attention in the same way that the NBA does? And this stat I'm going to read to you, this is from Mike Mulvihill. Uh, there are 17 cities in the United States that have both a Major League Baseball team and an NBA team. And this is an amazing stat that I think a lot of you out there are going to say, wow. Uh, last year, the Major League Baseball outrated the NBA in 14 of those 17 markets where there's an NBA and a Major League Baseball team head-to-head. And they won by an average of 107% across all 17 markets. So Major League Baseball, the local teams are dunking all over the local teams in the NBA as a measure of how much people care about those respective franchises. Yet the NBA has major national stars and national discussion surrounding its teams, and Major League Baseball has almost none of that. It's a long question, but I wanted to give John Morosi a big prelude here. Why? Why is it that Major League Baseball doesn't translate nationally, but regionally it dominates? That These two uh, sports, the NBA and Major League Baseball, are fascinating when you look at them from a local versus a national perspective. Well, that's a very good point, Clay. And, and uh, the reality is, I think baseball's essence, when you think about it, the roots of the game and, and the way that it is absorbed and celebrated uh, in, in cities around our country and of course in, in Toronto as well is is your local team your local team is the heartbeat of your interest in baseball and, and I would add as a parenthetical that that when you consider baseball stadiums that are by and large twice the size of basketball stadium basketball arenas uh, and they play twice as many games uh, the, the the attendance is almost always in that in both in raw numbers and in average numbers, going to be greater than that of the NBA team as well. That's that's almost a that's a given basically. Um, so I, I think that baseball is a very strong game uh, locally. And there, I even recall seeing a, a, a story uh, written in, in, the, in the New York Times on the morning of the uh, World Cup final in soccer, indicating that uh, that soccer, in terms of uh, raw numbers of youth participants, soccer has lost participation in the last year or two years and that baseball and softball have gained so uh, it's it's funny how how those narratives don't often see the light of day uh but i i think clay to answer the question it the the essential act of, of following baseball is most often that you are 
if you're a baseball fan, you are likely immersed in the, the rhythms and the, the overall story and plot line of your local team. And, uh, and that's why, for example, if you've got a baseball game on every night at, at 7 o'clock uh, in, in your local market, you'll, you'll watch that game and, and why you're, you're not going to stay up late to watch, if you're in the East Coast, to watch Mike Trout play or, or to watch Clayton Kershaw pitch in many cases. Uh, it's just a, a fundamentally different level of engagement, and I think it's that is the, the the essential character of the game is local. And and I would further submit that if you add up all of the local TV ratings um, on on each individual night uh, over, over the course of a season, it begins to look collectively. If you add up if you add up all the the local ratings every single day, and you and you total all of them. Uh, and, and you then compare that to the one, the one or three days, I guess, as, as you added the, the additional games of, of an NFL schedule. It, it, it doesn't look all that different from what the, the, the overall aggregate number of people watching baseball in a week and people watching the NFL in a week. Uh, th- those numbers are, are actually, if you look at the bulk of baseball, pretty similar. That's interesting. It is very interesting. I, I said in my tweet, maybe we need more feuds and free agency in Major League Baseball uh, in order to uh, to kind of draw in uh, more casual viewers. It's also a good point that the national games on the NBA are only taking place a couple of days a week, and the rest of the league is more of a regional product too. But um, right now, the Boston Red Sox are 81-34, and 34, and unheard of over 70% on a winning percentage. Usually, if you get to 60, it's a pretty good season you got going in Major League Baseball. Are they too hot too soon, or would you say basically the Red Sox are, at this point, a massive and prohibitive favorite as we start to come down the home stretch here of the Major League Baseball season? Well, I would say this, that the the too hot too soon, uh, I don't don't see that necessarily. I, I think that uh, we're, we're maybe conditioned to, to think that way because, of course, the the current uh, uh, American League record holder for wins was the Mariners back in '01, and and they uh, they won 116 games and then didn't even make it to the World Series because they lost to the Yankees that year in the ALCS. Um, and only, in fact, I believe ten teams ever t- talking about that 70 percent mark. The ten teams ever in baseball history have had a winning percentage of 700 or better. So it's pretty remarkable when you when you consider that that level of, of winning that the Red Sox are are doing right now. That being said, I I do believe that the postseason baseball is is pitched differently than the regular season, and and I'm not sure as great as the Red Sox have been, I'm not sure that they have the most dominant and the most uh, pliable and, and adaptable bullpen uh, in, in baseball, and we've seen obviously. Uh, last year, you had AJ Hinch using his starters in relief. Uh, the year before that, you had the 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 great tussle between the Cubs and the Indians in the World Series, and both those teams that had uh, re- relievers entering in the game earlier in the game for for longer innings uh, and longer stints. Uh, so, I, to me, Clay, I'm a big bullpen guy in the playoffs, and I think that's that's often what 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 tells the tale. And and I'm I'm not sure that the Red Sox bullpen, even with Craig Kimbrell uh, in the overall depth department, is is going to be the better one, although they will probably get one of their starters, obviously, mixing it into the bullpen, which which should help the pen down the stretch. And one of the reasons why they acquired Anthony Evaldi was because they believe he could actually handle that role. So 
uh, it's an interesting question, Clay, and I would say they're they're the best regular season team by a wide margin. And that's what we're seeing right now, but I'm I'm not convinced that it's going to continue into the playoffs. Did the Washington Nationals? We haven't asked you this yet. We're talking to John Morosi. Did the Washington Nationals make the right decision not to trade Bryce Drew? Uh, I, I think for me, uh, Bryce Harper. With, with, sorry, yeah. Bryce Drew. Uh, Bryce I, I, Drew I, I, I knew, I knew where you were going. <laughs> the problem is <laughs> when you have a name like Bryce and it's spelled B R Y C E. There aren't enough Bryces out there, and so yeah. I got Bryce Drew here in my backyard in Nashville, who's the Vanderbilt basketball coach. Bryce Harper. Did they make the right decision not to trade Bryce Harper? Uh, I, I think they did, Clay, because I, you look at their overall circumstances and 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 the chances they had to still win. I, I think that when, when if you were going to make that move to, to trade Harper on, on July 31st and really make a late pivot in the final uh, 48 hours before the deadline, th- there would have to have been a really strong return. There also would have had to have been just a really strong, well-thought-out process that that was what the best thing to do for the organization was. And to me, it wasn't clear. There also, Clay, I, I would say this, what I can tell from my sources back at the time, there were the interest level in terms of giving up the types of players that the Nationals would have needed to get in that deal to make it work for them. The interest level was just not there on that level on at that point. Uh, they they have the Nationals um, somebody that they believe is a franchise player and obviously has been a former MVP. The rest of the league says well, you've you've got a guy who's been batting in the two twenties and two thirties. And, and everybody else is, is valuing their pitching very, very closely. Uh, the Indians did that. with the, There were some conversations about Harper, and, and the, the Indians at that point re- refused to put Shane Bieber in the deal. Shane Bieber is their number five starter at the major league level, but he's young. He is controllable. Uh, he is, he's a home, homegrown player that they believe is going to have a key part of this team now for many years to come. And they said that they didn't really want to give up Bieber for a two-month rental. So, in in baseball, it's it's unique, Clay. The, the way that the the we talk about names and and what their values are, so much is tied to the way that they're playing right now for your team and where their overall value is into the future. And so, yes, it is true that that Bryce Harper uh, was not uh, somebody that Shane Bieber was going to be traded for, and 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 a, a reluctance to include Shane Bieber in a Bryce Harper offer is the reason why he did, he did not become a member of the Cleveland Indians. It's a, uh, it's a rather remarkable statement to make, and, and considering many Americans probably still don't know who, uh, who Shane Bieber is, but uh, that, that was the reality, and, and that's one of the reasons why uh, Bieber stayed put in, the, uh, in Cleveland and the Harper remains a Washington National. May or may not be related to Justin Bieber. Right now in the American League, we got the Red Sox with a massive lead over the Yankees, who are also having a really good season. Yankees would be the wild card. We've got the Indians with a double-digit lead over, uh, the, uh, over the Twins. It has not been a very good year for anybody else in the AL Central. And we've got the Astros, the defending World Series champs, opening up a little bit of a lead over the Oakland A's. So let's leave behind the American League, where right now, there aren't really any great division races that are taking place in the wake of what Boston did to the Yankees in that series. Uh, but in the National League, we got a lot of uncertainty in all three. So we've got uh, the uh, we've got the Phillies going up against the Braves in the NL East. I'm going to run through each of the National League and have you break down each of these divisions for me pretty quickly. Uh, do you think that that's going to be a Phillies against the Braves uh, race throughout the rest of the season? The Braves are 
probably at least a year ahead of where people expected them to be. Can they keep up with the Phillies, or is this the Phillies division in your mind? I, I think it's going to be a toss-up down the stretch. Play. And one of the things I love about this division and the schedule as it sits right now is that the Braves and the Phillies play each other head-to-head each of the last two weekends of the regular season. Oh, that's awesome. So uh, it's the best. And, and so w- when you look at it, uh, I don't really see any way that they arrive to that point without the NL East crown being what they're playing for. Uh, obviously, we can still see the Nationals get involved in this on some level. And, and, and yet, to your point, uh, the Nationals, I believe they were five and a half games back on the morning of July 31st. They, they kept Harper amid great fanfare. They won three games in a row. Well, right now they're six games back. So they've actually lost a half a game in, that, in those nine days. And and so the, which just speaks to the fact that that right now the both the Braves and the Phillies are are playing good baseball and it, and just the way that the game works it's hard to catch up to two teams in the same division race uh, in a very short amount of time and pass them both it, it especially with mathematically you know on some of those days down the stretch one of them is going to be winning so it just it, it's it makes the the Nationals task harder and as a baseball fan it makes all of us. Uh, at least if you're a neutral one, uh, all, all the more excited because you're going to see that division race more than likely decided on the field in the final two weekends of the season. All right, we've got the Cubs who have opened up a little bit of space, very little bit of space um, in the NL Central. Uh, St. Louis, the Cardinals kind of lurking out there a little bit. Uh, the, 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 the Pirates have fallen off, and uh, the Brewers are right there with them. How do you see the NL Central playing out? To me, Clay, the, the Cubs are are the best overall team, maybe even all the National League. I mean, on paper, when when they've got their, their players healthy, they're the best. And that being said, they've got Darvish, who is still uh, still out, getting closer to coming back. Chris Bryant, uh, of course, uh, Bryce Harper's old buddy from Las Vegas, they, they grew up together, basically, in terms of uh, travel baseball. Um, he is still on the DL with the with the bad left shoulder, and that's a concerning thing. He has not even started a swing of bat at the last report from uh, Paul Sullivan of the Chicago Tribune. So, um, to me, I, I, I think that the, despite their flaws, they're still the best team, uh, but th- this is not the same overall group as what we saw in 2016 there uh, that won the World Series. And I have said before, I would love to see the Cubs add an Adrian Beltre, who has who's played in more games than all but five players in MLB history that have not won the not won the World Series. So Beltre's got potentially this is one last chance to win the World Series. I think the Cubs, with the uncertainty around Chris Bryant, I think they are a great fit for Adrian Beltre. So stay tuned there. I, I, I believe Chicago remains the front runner, uh, although Milwaukee, uh, with a very unheralded rotation, has, has played better and, and exceeded expectations than certainly uh, anybody thought was maybe true for them there when the season began. The NL West, nobody has been able to really create any space all season long. Right now, the Diamondbacks have a tiny little lead over the Dodgers. Uh, You've got uh, Colorado Rockies kind of hanging around out there a little bit as well. What's going to happen in the NL West, which I think is probably the most wide open of any division coming down the stretch run here? Agree, Clay. I I think it is the most wide open. The the Giants still somewhat lurking there. Uh, They've they've played... uh, poorly since the deadline which may knock them out but but as you say it's still three teams that are very much involved there uh i think the dodgers again i i kind of go back to 
you know, the, the, the known quantity there. I think they're still the best team in that division. But I, there's some concern there. I still believe with their with their rotation, they've been able to do a good job at least of getting most of their guys back and pitching well. Rich Hill pitched well last time out. Kershaw is, is back to maybe not quite as most dominant, but maybe 90% of that, which is certainly good enough. So I, I look at that team, the Dodgers. I would like to see them add one more reliever um, uh, based on the way they're they're pitching right now. I think that there's there's a bit of a, a gap there in the, in the back of the bullpen. But uh, I've been impressed with the staying power of the Rockies and the Diamondbacks. The Rockies very quietly have been one of the best teams in baseball for the last five or six weeks. And they've got one of those true stars of the game in, in Nolan Arenado, uh, who I just love watch, watching him play. I think he's one of the best five players in the sport. Uh, both of those teams, of course, always hard for the Rockies to pitch a course. Uh, so I give the edge slightly to the Dodgers, but the Rockies and D-backs, I believe, are going to be in, at least in the wild card discussion and maybe even in the division race until the very, very last weekend of the season. Outstanding stuff as always. You join us every single Thursday. I appreciate you doing it. John Morosi, go follow him on Twitter. By the way, I was up in Ann Arbor in your town on uh, Saturday. Had a good time nice. running around. My wife's trying to sell the boys on becoming Big Ten fans. Uh, and I say we only make it into Ann Arbor when it's like 80 degrees. So she yeah. never takes them up when it's like minus 10 and like it was <laughs> over over Christmas and says like, hey, you get to walk around in the cold and the snow here. It's always like, hey, look here, 80 yeah. degrees, really good school. Your mom went here. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And, of course, Clay, this time of year, I'll, I'll put in the, 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 the pure Michigan plug here for all of us uh, that love the up north area. It, oh, this it's time fantastic. Of year, it's, it's gorgeous up there on, on a lake uh, in, in Michigan this time of year. Uh, not, not a better place in North America. Yeah, we were up at Boyne and we were up in uh, Mackinac and Traverse City and Petoskey and all those areas. I mean, they really are fantastic places in the summer. I love it up there. Well, th- th- thank you, Clay, for, for the kind words about our beautiful state, and uh, we, we are uh, eager to have you back here soon. I'm sure it'll happen. I just don't want to be there in the winter. Uh, that's uh, John Morosi <laughs> at John Morosi. Go follow him on Twitter. Fantastic baseball follow uh, if you're a big baseball fan. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. John Campbell joining us here. Uh, he's at Johnny Oddshark on Twitter, and there are 12 NFL games going on today as well as the ridiculousness surrounding the uh, the, 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 uh, the ridiculousness a little bit. How do you decide how you're going to gamble on an NFL preseason game? Because I feel like there are a lot of you out there who are ready and anxious. You just want to fire and bet on an NFL game or just a football game in general. And how do you play it? Uh, John Campbell with us now at Johnny Oddshark. What do you do here? Well, the preseason is different than the regular season in that I would say to take a look at the news ahead of looking at the data when you're betting on NFL preseason games. You want to know how long the starters are playing, who's injured, what the game plan is, and you're just not going to get that unless you're staying on top of the news. So look at news ahead of data. Another one I would say uh, is follow the money, and I wouldn't recommend that in the regular season, but the NFL preseason is a time where sharps really like to play and take advantage of some soft lines out there. So if you follow the money leading up to game time and watch where the line moves go, I would say follow that in the, in the NFL preseason. If you're really not sure who to play, that could be a good guide. I wouldn't say the same thing in the NFL regular season. There's sharp money going both sides all over the place all the time. 
And another one I'd say, a uh, really simple one, is think unders and underdogs in the NFL preseason. Underdogs are 54% going back to 1995, according to our numbers. And the under has also come in uh, really strongly in recent seasons. The under went 61% last year and 57% over the last five years. So think unders and underdogs when you're looking at the preseason. Here's an, I'm going to run through these lines and not even tell you who's playing. Two and a half, three, three, one and a half, one, one and a half, three, three, uh, minus 110, uh, minus two and a half, minus two, minus three and a half. So of the 12 games, there's only one that is more than a field goal favorite. And it seems to me, you tell me if I'm wrong on this, that there's sometimes value in betting the home team in a preseason game with the idea that the home team guy – the coach wants to win more than the road team does just because his fan base is there. And in fact, if you look at this, almost everybody is favoring the home teams, right? And I know there's a home field advantage, but I also think there's something to be said for deep down a coach would like to send his local team fans home happy, even if the game doesn't matter at all. Any, any basis for that, or am I crazy for thinking that way? No, I, I think you're absolutely right, and, and, and injuries are also another concern. I think coaches are a little more hesitant on the road, are a little more worried about their players getting injured. The Cowboys are a team, for example, that, that uh, really uh, pull it back on the road in the preseason. They, they're 0-10 straight up and 2-8 and against the spread in their last 10 games on the road in the preseason. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and, and that's not bad logic either in the preseason to start your handicapping, looking at the home team first. So, okay, having said all that, you just mentioned the 49ers and the Cowboys game. Does that mean you're on, if you had to bet, or if you are betting in these 12 NFL preseason actions, uh, who would you grab and who would you say this makes a lot of sense? Well, I, I really want to fade the Niners here because they are the absolute betting darling this year for betters coming into the NFL season. But the Cowboys just are so bad uh, on the road in the preseason, and they really don't care about the preseason anyway. They're a team that that just doesn't take the preseason very seriously, other than player position battles and things like that. They're one and eleven straight up, and three and nine against the spread in their last twelve games in the preseason as an underdog. Whereas the Niners, uh, they're coming out. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo is still undefeated. I know it's the preseason, but you kind of wonder if that's playing in the back of their minds a little bit here. And, and the starters are expected to play somewhat into the first quarter here. So, so even though this is the biggest spread on the board, the biggest favorite, I, I am leaning to the Niners here. All right, PGA is teeing off here in a couple of hours in the St. Louis area. How do you play it? Who do you like? Is Tiger in the mix? Yeah, I think Tiger is in the mix, and uh, we, we've got a Robert Trent Jones course here, and they tend to be shot makers courses. There, there's lots of strategically placed bunkers. There's water. They're tight. So when I handicap this one, I'm looking for the top iron players, and that includes Tiger. I actually made my first bet on Tiger Woods in the last 10 years here at 28-1. to 1, I think the odds aren't that bad, and he's sixth in shots gained in approach to the hole. So I don't think he's going to win. I think he's going to struggle just a little bit putting on these greens, but I think he'll be in the mix, and that'll set me up where, where I can take some other players going into the into the fourth round. 
Justin Thomas, the defending champ at 14 to one, is another great iron player that I'm looking at. Another really interesting one is Phil Mickelson, who's 100 to one, and those are the worst odds I've ever seen for him in a major. He was 66 to one at the British Open, but he's a great iron player. He's 11th in shots gained on approach. He's fourth in birdie average. I think birdies are going to be really important here this week as well. So. Bill Mickelson, even for those who hate him out there at 101, he's going to be hard to pass up. Okay, uh, one of the things I love in doing is following offshore odds for sometimes like really, you know, normal games, other times for basically prop bets. The Urban Meyer controversy has been a massive story. Everybody has been following it. It's the biggest story in college football, one of the biggest stories in sports in general. And there's been some contradictory odds out there. What have you seen about the odds that Urban Meyer is going to be fired, that Urban Meyer is going to be suspended? And how do you assess the different offshore books when it comes to where the money's going? What's the latest? Yeah, it, it, you, you said it. There are some contradictory odds out there. And, and one book has Urban Meyer to be fired at minus 300. So risking 300 to win 100. Definitely so that would basically be... Yeah, for people out there, like a 75% chance, according to that book, that Urban Meyer is going to be fired, roughly, right? I mean, that's a pretty big pretty big favorite. Yeah, absolutely. And and another book, meanwhile, uh, Will He Be Fired or Resign? They have him at, at yes is 6-1. to one. So a big underdog for him to be fired and no at minus 1,500. So those are two books there that are getting uh, so how does that happen how does that happen that one book so I mean that is a like a, if you're gonna play an arbitrage situation here you have one offshore that is basically like yes he is going to resign or be fired it's going to happen and then the other one's like there's almost no chance it's gonna happen you never see that in like where one book has somebody favored by seven and the other one has him a seven point underdog yet that's basically what we're seeing here. Yeah, it's pretty unusual, and and where it's a prop bet like this, the, the the limits are low, so it's not like a whale can come in and and uh, and really take advantage of, of these lines. But sometimes books will have uh, odds makers that it, that they give a little more free reign to, and they get information that they love, and they're going to hang a line out there. And I think that's just what's happening here. I think one odds maker really believes in the information. I'm kind of leaning to to know. Just based on that, where uh, with this one book seems so convinced that there's no way he's going to be fired at minus fifteen hundred, and and putting yes at six to one, so uh, I don't think he'll be fired, but I, I like those yes six to one odds. Yeah, it is really kind of intriguing. What else is out there that you're paying attention to? I saw the Johnny Manziel. I know you're in Canada. We're talking to John Campbell at Johnny Oddshark. Johnny Manziel had an awful performance in his first uh, Canadian Football League game. I'm not even sure when he plays again, but I was following the first one. Uh, How much more attention have you seen? And I'm sure betting markets saw a little bit of an uptick just based on the number of people who pay attention to Johnny Manziel in general. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was talking to Randall, the handle, the man who sets the original uh, CFL aligner every week. And, and uh, after Manziel and, and lost this game heavily to the Hamilton Tiger Cats, and I was on Hamilton there, I, you know, I asked him, where are you going to set this line? And he was just saying, you know, I, I have no idea. I don't know if I can set it high enough. 
But I think he said it right. It's at 13 and a half this week. There's 13 and a half point underdogs or 14 point underdogs uh, against Ottawa in Ottawa on Saturday night and uh, keep fading Montreal. It's not Manziel's fault. This is a terrible, terrible team. Bad offensive line. So Ottawa's favored by 14. I think they're going to win by at least three touchdowns. Uh, poor Manziel's going to struggle for a little bit just because of this team he's on. Good stuff as always, John Campbell. We'll talk to you next week. Where else can you get Canadian Football League uh, gambling tips but here on OutKick? <laughs> Appreciate the time, my man. I saw you had a good time out in uh, Vegas. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. One of the guys that I like following in the world of media, um, and because he makes me smarter, like to learn is Rich Greenfield. He works at BTIG Research. He's at Rich BTIG. He covers all of these uh, major media companies, the Disney's, the CBS's, the Fox, the NBC's, the Netflix's, the Comcast, every different little entity that's out there in the media universe trying to make noise, trying to fight through in this amazing cord-cutting era. And uh, all of the earnings are starting to come out. And I saw him and I read a pretty interesting detail from him. If you've been paying attention to uh, the world of media in general, it's a phenomenal podcast. I'm not even a podcast guy, but I was up in Michigan driving back with my wife. Uh, my wife listens to podcasts a lot. Uh, I'm just not in my car enough, so I typically am not listening. But she said, uh, a lot of you had reached out to me and you said, hey, I think you'll really like this Business Wars podcast. And it's about Business Wars. They find two different businesses that went head-to-head and competed and their first ever business war they did was Netflix versus Blockbuster Video. And Rich Greenfield is a big part of it. In fact, he's actually episode eight in this series. And I believe we have Rich with us now. Is he queued up and good to go? Uh, good to go, okay. Clay. That was quite the intro. Uh, yeah. So um, I, I'm listening to that. I didn't even know you were a part of it. A lot of people <laughs> had said, hey, Clay, I know you'll love this. And so I was in the car for eight hours driving back from Michigan with my family and, uh, and you probably hear that a lot. I remember back in the day when David Letterman used to say, and he had the late night show, and he would say, you know, like, I, people would make an excuse for why they listened to, why they were watching him. Like, I couldn't sleep at all. And, you know, you were on television. So I'm on an eight hour car ride, and I listened to it, and it was fascinating. So well done, Blockbuster versus Netflix. And I feel like we've now transitioned into, and it ends with like Netflix kind of going head to head with HBO. But I feel like you've been writing about and I've been kind of paying attention to it and we've been inching up towards it. It's actually going to be Netflix against Disney. These are the two Leviathans that are going to be butting heads. And so what's going to happen here? For people out there, I bet a lot of my listeners have Netflix subscription. Disney is going to start a, a, a streaming subscription too. You've called it Disney Flicks and it seems to be catching on. Uh, I saw the New York Times used it the other day. I've seen the Wall Street Journal use it. For people out there who are consuming content, what's Disney going to do? Look, Disney feels a lot of pressure, right? I mean, you've got Netflix has grown from, you know, just whatever, five or six years ago, Netflix was, you know, a five or six billion dollar company. Netflix, just to be clear today, Netflix's market cap is $151 billion. Um, when you stack that up against Disney, Disney's got a $170 billion market cap. And so I think Disney has been shocked at the explosion of Netflix, how consumers all over the world have embraced it, how Netflix 
is, you know, it used to buy shows from Disney, you know, lots of shows, all the Marvel series that you see like Avengers, and not Avengers, like Jessica Jones and the Defenders, all of that content was acquired from Disney or licensed from Disney. But Netflix is now increasingly making their own content and going head-to-head. And so they've gone from kind of distribution partner to direct competitor. And I think Disney increasingly feels threatened that here's a company that has a direct relationship with most of your listeners, I'm assuming are Netflix subscribers. Netflix knows who they are. They know who their family is. They know what they like to watch. They know which episode they tune out on, what part of the episode they tune out on, how much of a series, what they're sampling, what their kids like. Compare that to Disney. They don't even know who Clay Travis is. They literally, unless you go to one of their theme parks, they don't know who you are. If you're watching ESPN, don't know who you are. If you're watching Disney Channel, no clue. You buy a ticket to Star Wars, no idea who you are. They don't have a direct-to-consumer relationship business. And I think they're really scared of what the future looks like without any data. You, know, you compare that to the Netflixes, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Amazons. All these companies have direct relationships and know who we all are. Disney knows nothing. And so I think they're really trying to, to shift their business model from you know, basically a wholesale model where they worked with third parties like cable and satellite companies or movie theaters, and they're trying to go direct to consumer. But it's hard, really, really hard. Yeah, and, and I want to build on that a little bit because I feel like everybody wants to get into the subscription business now, right? Because they've seen how big Netflix has gotten, like yep. you said, $150 billion market cap. Netflix has exploded in growth. And whether it's Dollar Shave Club who advertises on this show or, you know, there's lots of different people and I get Dollar Shave Club sent to me. But you just hit on something that I think most people don't recognize, which is it's hard to get people to sign up for your subscription business. We've got an OutKick VIP that a couple of thousand people have signed up for. And I'm ecstatic that we got a couple of thousand people to sign up to pay $99 a year. You can go sign up at OutKick.com. And that's become a dis- decent little part of our business, this subscription model. But it is like it, it, it is fascinating to me how many uh, people don't realize how difficult it is to get into it. And in particular, you are estimating, because Disney's kind of put their toe in this with ESPN+. Plus. And you think that they've only got around 100,000 subscribers. And what blew me away is you said to get to break even, you think they need 7 million. Correct. So the issue is when you think about how hard direct-to-consumer is, you know, HBO, a lot of your viewers or listeners may, may remember, a couple of years ago they launched HBO Now. And they shot up from almost nothing to a million subscribers really fast. But then Game of Thrones ended. And lots of people canceled. Yeah. And churn is really difficult to manage in a direct-to-consumer business. You have to keep giving people something they want every single day or they cancel. And that's why Netflix is kind of a robust bundle of content. Uh, HBO has started to rely more on kind of that old wholesale model. So most of HBO's so-called direct-to-consumer subs are now on the Amazon platform. And they don't really have a relationship with HBO. They're really just a relationship with Amazon. And I think what the, the learning here is, is starting a subscription business from scratch is excruciatingly hard. And that's when you look at the ESPN Plus business, Disney's never been in the direct-to-consumer business. And they've got kind of the, 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 the hardest thing that they're struggling against is that their best content, they're not offering. So yes. there's, no, there's not going to be Monday Night Football on ESPN Plus. 
there's not going to be weekday NBA games on ESPN+. Plus. All, you know, all the best college football games, all the bowl games are on ESPN, the channel, part of your $80, $90 a month package that they force you to buy. It's all the leftovers, the things that they didn't, you know, basically a lot of the stuff that used to be on Watch ESPN, some incremental rights they've now bought, like UFC. Uh, they just bought Series A Italia rights so that you can watch Ronaldo on ESPN+. Plus. Rather than put that content onto the main channel and add value to the bundle where you're paying 8 or $9, they now want to take those, your, your listeners and force them to pay twice. Yeah, and and you're, that's the, what's really, I think, aggravating to consumers is they're trying to double dip. They want you to pay for the cable bundle and pay direct to consumer, and that is a tough ask for consumers. And not only are they trying to double dip, they're trying to double dip with something that you don't want. Right. I mean, that, that, it's <laughs> well, no, all about... Clay, I think that's unfair. There are some people that want super rugby. There are some people... <laughs> yes. th- there are. I mean, look, there fair. are people... But it's not, it's not the, the thing that I think a lot of people haven't realized about ESPN+, Plus because I hear this a lot. Oh, why don't I just cancel my cable and I'll just get ESPN+, Plus and I won't have to pay for my cable bill. No, no, no. You don't get... Correct. And I think this is key. You don't get what you get on ESPN, ESPN2, ESPNU, ESPN News, uh, e- all the different ESPNs that are on your cable package. All of that programming is not included. And I've actually suggested, I'm curious on your front here, that if they really wanted to try to get people to sign up, I would put all of my podcasts, if I were ESPN, I'd put it all behind the paywall. Because they're not making, a, you'll like this, I heard that ESPN last year made $7 million off of all the podcasts that they put out there on iTunes and everything else, which is literally a drop in the bucket. There are a lot of people who are interested in podcasts. I think about this with what I do, and I mentioned that I listen to you on Business Wars, but we do a three-hour daily show. People can listen to it on 300 stations, AM, FM, Sirius, and then we also put up the podcast, and millions of people will download it every month. Um, And the podcast, to me, you get an hour and a half of me, or two hours, without all the ads and all the stops and everything else. A part of me thinks, from a business perspective, most people pay for convenience, And if you are downloading the podcast and being able to hear the entire show without having to hear all the ad breaks and everything else on live radio, shouldn't you have to pay for that? And so if I were ESPN, I'd be trying to think of premium content we have that we could put behind that paywall to get people to sign up for. Look, I I think the reality is getting millions of people to do something is not easy. Yeah. You know, they... They put 30 for 30. I would call 30 for 30 some of the best content on ESPN. And they put that behind the paywall on ESPN+. Plus. The problem is, how many people are going to sign up for ESPN+, Plus so they can watch the Bobby Knight special? Like, it, there's some great content. I love the, the Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, 30 for 30. But I'm not sure I'm going to spend $5 a month. And Am I going to spend $5 a month for that month? Or am I going to pay $5 a month for the entire year? They need full-year subscribers. So, I, look, I think the reality is they're trying to add more content, which, you know, when you mentioned before that they need 7 million subscribers, the way we got to that number is they put $150 million to get UFC rights. Yeah, that's great, except for the fact that there's going to be a ton of UFC content available on the ESPN main channel. And so unless you're a super diehard and you have to see every single UFC match, most, you know, more than half the content is going to be on the linear ESPN channel. Unless you put everything, like all the best college football games on ESPN, the leftovers are on ESPN+. Plus. You have to create something. The only way to get WWE, that content, 
is either you pay for a pay-per-view, which is very expensive, or you subscribe to the WWE network. They've created essentially exclusivity. I think the problem with, with the ESPN strategy is too much of the content is sticking to the linear business model. They're conflicted because they have two businesses. They live in both worlds. If they want to be direct-to-consumer, they've got to go all in and put all of their great content, and then they can actually be successful over the long term. I just think they're too scared to go all in. We're talking to Rich Greenfield. Follow him at RichBTIG on Twitter, and I think that's a great point. ESPN and Disney, they're trying to fight a two-fronted war, and you were talking about the difficulty of getting people to sign up for subscriptions. I want to tell you these two, and you mentioned the WWE Network there. I'm a WWE shareholder and have been telling you guys to buy for a while. I know you have as well. Um, What is fascinating to me is the NFL is a massive, huge audience. Only 2 million people pay for the NFL Sunday ticket package. In other words, we know how many NFL fans there are out there. Now, it's exclusive on DirecTV and some of the streaming services now through AT&T, but only 2 million subscribers, right? Here's another one. The WWE Network, which you just mentioned, flirting right around 2 million subscribers. When I saw that 7 million number for you, my jaw literally dropped. I was sitting there reading, and I was like, man, I hadn't done the math on how many they need to sign up. We know how wildly popular the NFL is. That's all out-of-market NFL games 2 million subscribers. We know how crazily popular the WWE is. That's all the pay-per-views they do, the the WrestleManias. It's all their best content. 2 million subscribers. How in the world does ESPN think, and Disney to a certain extent as well, that they're going to be able to sign up millions of people going direct to consumer? It is a really incredible question. Um, You know, when you look at the fact that if you turn it on right now, you know, what it's promoting on the ESPN app. I mean, you've got uh, Oklahoma City Energy versus the Monarchs. You've got Fire versus Red Bulls. You've got Roughnecks versus Switchbacks. I mean, you've got a lot of content that my guess is is not going to drive a tremendous amount of adoption. It's hard. I mean, look, I think they are trying to prove to Wall Street that they can make the transition to direct-to-consumer Without, while living, as you said, living in both worlds. And I think Netflix's advantage, Amazon's advantage, Apple's advantage, all of these companies, they don't have to worry about linear TV and what the cable and satellite operators care about. Look, I think it's in many ways, it's why, you know, the, the head of your, your company, Rupert Murdoch, is selling most of his company, right? Like, he's done. He yeah. sees what's happening to the world. He sees how consumer behavior is changing. And he's hitting the exit button and selling at a huge price to Disney and saying, good luck, Disney. Do you think that Disney Flicks will be a big-time success or even a success? Well, I guess the question is they have to figure out how much they want to spend on it. If you look at the – you know, Bob Iger was talking the other night. He's the chairman and CEO of Disney, and he was talking about the fact that they're going to go relatively slow. They don't want to go too fast. Um, they have some great brands, and so they're going to proceed slowly. He also talked about kind of a three-pronged approach. They're going to have ESPN direct-to-consumer. They're going to have Hulu for kind of more adult fare, and then they're going to have Disney flicks for kids and family. The problem with that is, I don't know, I watch Hulu. I don't know if you do, Clay, but when you're watching Blackish or Modern Family, or there's lots of content on Hulu that feels family-friendly, like content that is part of family content. Yes. It seems really confusing to the consumer that, you know, 
certain contents on Hulu, certain contents on ESPN, certain contents on Disney flicks, it, it does seem a bit confusing. And I, I think unless you have a really robust offering, you're going to have churn. And to your point on, like, how many people can you reach, you need as much content as you humanly can, and you need a global platform. Disney Flix is only initially launching in the U.S. They haven't even begun to kind of plan out the global strategy. And so the, the competing element, can they get to millions of subs? I'm sure. They, have an, you know, they do an original Star Wars series, an original Pixar series. They're going to get a meaningful number of subscribers. But it's, again, like the HBO example, it's not about getting subscribers, it's keeping subscribers. And that's the real challenge is how do you mitigate churn? And remember, Netflix is at 130 million subscribers. By the time Disney Flix launches, it's probably 170 million by the end of 2019. And so Disney starting at zero, they're competing against 170 at that point. Can Disney Flix get to three, four, five million subs? For sure. Maybe even 10. Can they get to 50 to 100 or 200? I don't know with this strategy, because remember, they've still got lots of content going to movie theaters, lots of content on ABC, lots of content on Disney Channel, lots of content on Hulu, lots of content on Freeform. I mean, it's exhausting to think about how they're going to manage what goes where and who, who decides what goes where. Like, who's the gatekeeper on choosing this content goes to this outlet? That's really complicated. We're talking to Rich Greenfield, and Rich, I, I am fascinated by Netflix on like every possible level. Um, I'm a shareholder. I continue to just study it because I just find it so utterly intriguing. i got a question for you. Investors allowed Amazon to never show a profit because they just kept looking at how big the market was, and they said, my God, Amazon is going to dominate online shopping and you know what they do every day a package arrives in my house it's from amazon they've refined the delivery process i enjoy the process of going on amazon i'm not even much of a shopper but i love that i can pull my phone out i can go find any book any movie anything that i want direct from amazon it can be at my house often in 24 hours and that's whether i needed diapers for one of my babies or whether i need uh the newest book that just came out that i can't wait to read uh, but the benefit to Jeff Bezos and for Amazon was they never had that quarterly pressure to show profit like most companies do. Is Netflix going to be treated the same way because they're creating such a massive audience for themselves and because Wall Street recognizes how difficult the subscription basis is? Or at some point, is the pressure actually actually going to get ratcheted up, and are they going to say, okay, Reed Hastings, it's time to stop spending billions of dollars on content and prove to us that you can have a consistently lucrative business model? Well, I guess I'd say two things. One, in the U.S., Netflix makes money. So if it wasn't yeah. for the fact that they wanted to be a massive global company and attack, you know, I mean, they've probably got sub a million subscribers in India, but there's probably 50 to 100 million potential middle-class, upper-middle-class households in India. So if they weren't trying to attack this global opportunity, they would be profitable. Two, I think Wall Street broadly has gotten very excited. If you look at like why the stock has moved up you know, effectively 100% over the last year, it's because they demonstrated that people love their content. And what do I mean by that? They raise price. So you probably remember, Clay, you got a price increase back in probably November or December of last year. The price went up um, by a full dollar. Um, they added 25% more subscribers in the first half of 2018 
than in the first half of 2017. So the price went up, and more people signed up than the year before. That's pretty unheard of, and I think that really demonstrates people's love, consumers' love of Netflix, the service, and of Netflix content. It's, cause it's not just the content. It's the experience and the content combined together that makes the magic happen. And I think it's, it's that dynamic that is allowing Wall Street to say, you know what, go invest. We will give you credit for building that business and the opportunity rather than dinging you for losing money today. And I think it's that long-term vision and people's comfort with that long-term vision versus most of the media, com- the legacy media companies that simply are trying to drive current year earnings as high as possible and really don't have a future strategy. Quickly on your way out, because I know you got some conference calls to get ready for big earnings season. Uh, you're at your desk there in Manhattan, Rich Greenfield, BTIG Research. Does Les Moonves survive at CBS? You know, look, everyone's innocent until proven guilty. So, you know, it's hard to, to know. But I will say, it, you know, in a lot of these situations, we've seen the first shot um, or the first story leads to others. So, you know, I think we're all waiting to see whether there's more to this, what ultimately happens. I mean, I think we're very surprised he wasn't at least put on leave while the investigation goes on. I mean, that could still happen. But I think the larger issue is forget about the these current allegations for a moment. He is in a what looks like a, an ultimately losing position in his battle with National Amusements, the controlling shareholder of Viacom and CBS. And so we never thought Les was going to survive over the next 12 months anyway based on that battle, which we don't think the CBS and CBS board could, can, can win. And so I think the answer to your question is, there is no chance over the next 12 months that Les Moonves is still running CBS. What's going to cause it? Is it the battle in, you know, the court battle? Is it the Me Too stuff? I have no idea. But ultimately, I can't imagine Les is at CBS 12 months from now. Outstanding stuff, as always. I want to encourage you guys, go reach out to him. He's busy all day. He's active on Twitter. He'll make you smarter. At Rich BTIG on Twitter. Rich Greenfield, I appreciate it, my man. Thanks a lot. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. I'm sure it's not that easy to get ready for Oklahoma, but I can't wait to see him try. Lane Kiffin uh, joining us now here on Outkick. How much prep have you done already for Oklahoma? Do you feel like you know what the offense is going to do already, or do you wait and not want to get ahead because it's just week one? I'm curious how you prepare for a first game of the season that big. Well, Clay, we start a long time ago, regardless of who it is. Um, you know, that's what we use the offseason for is <clears throat> first to look at our last season, how can we improve there, but then start on, on all 12 opponents and, and work backwards, actually, so that we end up. Um, towards the end of, you know, towards summer, um, working on Oklahoma. So um, we spent a lot of time there, but this is the beginning of camp, so we're not doing it now within camp. And then as camp goes here later, we get we get to our few, first few opponents in. You were sold a dream on FAU. <clears throat> like, you can come down here, Lane Kiffin. I know the president of the university said, hey, you can come down here. You can make a difference. We can build this. You won 11 games in year one. How much difference is the different is the feeling in year two than it was when year one? Totally different feeling around here. Um, not just from going from three wins to eleven wins, um, but really, I think the the excitement around because it had been so long. You know, really had not not really won for years, if 
arguably, period. So um, for the people to feel good, the school, the, the students, you know, to feel excited and good about something versus just having hope that, hey, maybe this is our, our year, you know, and so it is exciting for them. You know, we joke about the rat poison and all that, but the one good thing about preseason top 25 and, you know, preseason All-American running back and all these things, the, the best thing about that is, you know, it does give your fans and your and your and your school a lot of excitement around the area and, and, and something to look forward to. The NFL preseason really gets underway today. I know you've coached in the NFL College football, you don't get any preseason at all. You guys are going straight on the road into kind of the lion's mouth, so to speak, going into Oklahoma in Norman, a team that made the playoff last year. Uh, Would you rather get a little bit of an easier game to start with, or do you like starting with a game this difficult? We lost Lane. Uh, We'll call back Lane Kiffin. He dodged me right as I started to ask him about Oklahoma. Uh, We'll get him back up on uh, the line um and uh and get that back up and running so just let me know when we got lane kiffin back up in the meantime um lane kiffin opens against oklahoma so that game is taking place on the first saturday of the year and oklahoma obviously lincoln riley coming in for his second year and what's fascinating about that is college football doesn't get the preseason like the nfl does you're a pro and you get four games to work your way up to being in a perfect spot and then in college football, you got to be ready to hit the ground running. And I'm curious when we get Lane Kiffin back up, and he's back up with us now, would you rather start with a big game like this, massive opponent on the road, or would you rather inch your way in and start? Which way is better from your perspective to get the team ready? I think it probably depends on where your team's at. Um, I think um, there is a great thing about it, and this started years ago. Um, you know, USC, Pete Carroll started doing it, and and then, um, and now Coach Saban's been doing it every year. Is you know the philosophy is, you spend all off season, your players spend all off season, thinking about that first game, you know, to go play in one of these big openers. So, I think there's a lot of really good things to it. Um, I think there is sometimes maybe where, you know, if you're at an elite top five program where you already have you know a, a very difficult schedule that. Um, or maybe it's one of those years that you got a you know freshman quarterback or something like that, or a lot of playing a lot of young players. Maybe you don't want to do that. You know Jalen Hurts well. The biggest story in the offseason college football, Jalen Hurts, Tua Tagovailoa. I believe you recruited Tua too. I think I remember seeing you on the road out in Hawaii recruiting him. What do yep. you think about Jalen Hurts? I imagine you've talked to him at some point during the offseason just because you were his offensive coordinator and had tremendous success with him in his uh in his freshman year in fact he never lost a game playing quarterback for you what would you tell him what have you told him what do you think about his situation well i think first of all it kind of tends to be this story wherever you turn on a tv here lately every single day or college football live you know like that you know what is alabama going to do and this is this you know very tough situation to be in and i don't you know everyone in the world would love that situation. Not just do you have two great players, you know, and then everyone's down on Jalen and the guy led the world in turnover ratio, touchdowns, interceptions last year, which really is your number one thing as a quarterback to do is to take care of the ball, put your team in position to win, which he does all the time, including two years ago in the national championship game. He put the ball in the end zone. He didn't, it wasn't his fault. Clemson went down and scored or he would have won that one too. So, um, and Tua did a great job. Saw Tua this summer and, um, amazing player so not just do they have a great a great 
situation that people call a problem, but you're dealing with kids that are young, just finished their first and second year of college. So um, usually, rarely, I know George is going through one, but rarely do you ever have that problem because it's very difficult to recruit two great quarterbacks back-to-back, especially when the first ones are already playing. So they, they're, in a, they're in an awesome situation. Were you surprised that Jalen Hurts came out and said what he did? I know when you were at Alabama, Nick Saban didn't let assistant coaches talk. I remember one time seeing you after a national championship game on the field, and you're like, he doesn't let me talk. And like, I mean, that was sometimes good. Maybe maybe that was what you needed was not to talk to media at that time. But players typically say nothing at all. Were you surprised that Jalen Hurts came out and said even what he said before the season started last week? Well, I think Jalen has handled this situation unbelievable better than than most would um better than i would have at that age you know and um because again you know think about what the kid kid has done you know he, he's put them in position again and again to win whatever it is 22 and 2 or something whatever it is as a starter um is is really unbelievable and to do that at a young age so um i'm not surprised um i think most people would have, would have said something earlier you know because i'm he you know, we've got to remove ourselves from the situation when you're in it and look at the kid's situation. I'm sure he's sitting there thinking, you know, hey, Tua played one half of football, you know, and I did all this, I did all this, and now all of a sudden everybody's just saying, oh, this thing's over, and he's he's the starter, and he's one of the top, you know, 15 players in the country based off of a half of a football, you know, and so I'm sure that that's very, it is very difficult to deal with, and he's done a great job dealing with it, and especially that position. What would, what do what do all these other kids do nowadays, you know? And this is a lot because of parenting. They leave, they transfer, it gets hard. You know, most kids would have already left. So, um not just he's not leaving that he's battling there um says a lot about him and says a lot about his parents too. We're talking to Lane Kiffin. Have you been following the Urban Meyer controversy at Ohio State at all? Uh, just a little bit, you know, we get home late or whatever, and I put on a college football live recording or something. So, um, just saw a little bit of it. What, what are your thoughts in general about a story like that? I mean, you guys are under a lot of pressure, what, no, regardless of what kind of coach you are, where you're coaching, everybody's under a microscope being examined, uh, day in and day out. Uh, when you see a story like that, does it make you adjust the way that you coach? Does it make you worry about things in in your past as a coach? Like, how do you assess it? Because I think it's fair to say Urban Meyer and Nick Saban are the two most successful coaches in college football right now. And Urban Meyer is not currently coaching at Ohio State. He's on a leave of absence. We don't know what's going to happen with him. Uh, I'm sure it's a major topic and discussion in the coaching fraternity in general. What kind of lessons, if any, can you take from that? Well, I think head coach accountability and this, you know, NCAA started more with the recruiting part of that, you know, a few years back of making them accountable and every single thing, you know, that you get, you worry about and you got to follow the right protocol and, and report it up and, and do the right thing. So um, <clears throat> I don't know all the details and, and I don't think any of us know all the details. Um, I did think, you know, the part I did see where Paul Feinbaum came on, you know, was true. It is ridiculous that, you know, here's these fans out there, a hundred fans or whatever that, that know nothing about the situation that, that if Urban Meyer had won 60% of his games, wouldn't be out there holding these signs up about, you know, save Urban Meyer and how great he is, you know, and that should not be the focus at all. Um, obviously the, the situation of the, 
you know, of the ex-wife in this situation should be what the focus is, you know, not, not having rallies um, about a coach so we can win more football games. Did you think those fans looked like losers? Because I came on and said they looked like losers to show up in that rally in that situation. Uh, that, that's probably what you you would have said. I don't think I'd say say losers. <laughs> um, I just think it's just it just shows how far off we can be in in certain situations because there's so much focus on winning and can someone help us win a game and can this coach win games? Well, if he does, then we don't care about this other stuff that is a million times more important than a stupid football game. Yeah, it's interesting. And one of the things that seems like over the years with you has been your perspective has kind of widened uh, in terms of, you know, like uh, you're you're not just coaching football anymore. You seem to recognize that at FAU you've got an opportunity to change a lot of lives along the way. How much artificiality is there in your business? In in other words, how many coaches sell one thing publicly and then privately they're completely a different person? Is that common in your industry? Well, I think that's probably common a lot when people are in front of the media on a national stage. Um, I think, you know, as <clears throat> we've talked about before, and you know, Clay, you can love me or hate me and, and you know, have gone through a lot and, and screw a lot of things up still today, but um, I'm real and, and not fake. And so I've told our coaches before when you get to become head coaches, you know, um, like there's a book, you know, be real because fake is exhausting. You know, you see, see these people get up all the time and act one way in front of the media, say all these things about how they run the program, how they treat people, and then they're completely opposite as soon as they walk, you know, back into that, you know, back into the team or staff room. So um, I've just never understood that. And that's just kind of always been my pet peeve that people that say one thing because they want you to think something and they're completely different, you know, and how they truly treat people and run their organization. We do know that Urban Meyer at Big Ten Media Days got up and lied in front of the media. Now, talking to the media and telling untruths is part of your business in some way because when people ask about on-field, if you got a guy who's injured or there's some story that you don't want to come out that might be a competitive advantage, how do you decide when it, like how to address a media question? I mean, Urban Meyer has now apologized basically for lying to the media should there be any consequences for that for a head football coach who gets caught lying like Urban Meyer did at Big Ten Media Days? Well, again, I have not followed it to know all the details of the situation. Um, <clears throat> I, I do think, you know, we do get up there um, and, and you get so many questions. And one of the things as you learn is, as you do this more and more is to slow down. You know, I used to answer things really fast, kind of slow down and 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 coach Saban's really good at that and think, think things through versus just answering really quick, you know, to get out of the press conference. And then all of a sudden you say something wrong. So, um, you know, we, you know, probably, um, you know, we always, you know, we're always in a rush and we should probably slow down and spend more time, you know, with our SID, you know, to tell you what really is coming, what's really out there um, to, to really understand, you know, kind of like, you know, they do with the president before he goes up and speaks because, um, you can, you know, get a hundred questions and that one right in the middle and you go through it fast and answer it wrong, you know, can be very detrimental. Speaking of detrimental rat poison, my guy, Joel Klatt, I know you know him well. He said he thought your team could go on the road and be competitive with Oklahoma. What would you like to say to Joel Klatt? Good chance he's going to listen. I don't think he said competitive. I think he said beat. What he said. <laughs> we go on the road and beat him. Yeah. I think that they're, you know, um, I think that 
people forget, you know, you just all of a sudden win some games and all of a sudden now, you know, we're going to go in and beat Oklahoma. Here's a, you know, top five team in the country, arguably maybe the best team last year, you know, if the play goes here or different, you know, in, in that semifinal game. Um, and then, you know, we, we've never even beaten a team probably in the top 50 in the history of our school. So to just think that's going to happen is, is, is ridiculous. But, um, but again, you know, that's the rat poison side of it, but, but the good side of it is, like I said, our fans, you know, our alumni, you know, at least they're, they are relevant now, which is, which was a big part of the goal here. Outstanding stuff as always, Lane Kiffin. Know you're busy guy getting ready for the season. Appreciate you joining us. All right, Clay. Have a great week. Thanks. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. All right, game off. We got to pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. I know what you're saying, flag on the play. You already talked about that, but there's just so much good stuff in this game. In Monopoly Go, you can team up with friends for time tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. The more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. Unique stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes. Cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with. Hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges. A ton include their new unique mini-games like Digging for Treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go, so get off the bench and go download it now free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on!